Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ory. After half a decade of low oil prices, things have changed pretty dramatically in recent months. Global benchmark oil prices are touching $120 a barrel this week, and gasoline prices in parts of the U.S. are topping out at close to $7 a gallon. High prices have become a massive headache for policymakers already worried about rising inflation as the economy tries to restart following two years of pandemic shutdowns. Now, while it's easy to point to Russia's war in Ukraine and the U.S. and European embargo of Russian oil as a primary cause of these high prices, the reality is that the oil market crisis is far bigger and more complex than the Russia situation alone. So how did we get here? What resolves this crisis? And ultimately, what does this mean for the transition to a green economy? To help answer those questions, I recently sat down with Jeff Curry, Global Head of Commodities Research at Goldman Sachs. At Goldman, Jeff spends much of his time researching the oil market and forecasting oil prices to help guide investment strategies. Under his leadership, the commodities team consistently ranks number one. Jeff is a CNBC Analyst of the Year and all-around commodity market guru. And he got his PhD from the University of Chicago. We're thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk with Jeff on this topic. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's our total pleasure. Uh, how are things in London? You know, busy as ever with everything that's going on in the energy markets. And, you know, being here in London, it's, you know, it's really truly the center of, of commodity markets. And, you know, the information flow, I think, really, you know, sets London apart, you know, as to being, you know, the center of commodities. Did, did you ever think or did you think that we would ever be back here? I mean, and I, and I asked that in this in this in the following sense. Uh, I feel like the policy community, governments, you know, energy, climate advocates really took their eye off of oil after, let's say, 2014, when you had the price crash uh, and so much attention and policy effort and planning went 100% focused on the grid and climate and people kind of forgot about oil. And I feel like this whole episode is almost like a you know, it's like deja vu all over again. It feels so much like uh, the kinds of situations that we've been in with prior energy spikes. But I, I think people didn't think this could happen again. Right. And I and I completely concur with that assessment. And, you know, even to, you know, today, you, I speak to policymakers that are convinced, oh, just give it a few more weeks. The shale machine will crank back up and we'll be back to $55, $60 a barrel. I think there was a belief that shale was enough to solve every single problem that could be thrown at the at the oil market, and that was generated really from two episodes: what what occurred in you know fourteen and fifteen that you referred to, but also what occurred in um, eighteen and nineteen. Remember, we went up and kissed eighty eight dollars a barrel, and the shale machine cranked out two million barrels per day of supply. And next thing we know, we were back down into that forty fifty range. And I think that those two episodes painted a picture in most people's heads combined with the negative oil prices we saw back in April of 2020, um, convinced the world that we would never see $100 a barrel again. Yeah. And so your reference to 2019 and 2020 really is a perfect launching off point for where I kind of wanted to start our conversation, which is, you know, how did, how did we get here? I think that there's such a heavy focus on what's happening in Russia and Ukraine that I think we've sort of glossed over that this storm was kind of building in the fall. Prices were already going up, coming out of the, out of the COVID kind of uh, the global response to COVID. There seemed to already be quite a bit of momentum around oil prices in the fall, well before uh, what happened with Russia and Ukraine. And 
my sense of it was, and I don't know everyone agrees with this. My sense of it was that part of that was that I felt like OPEC coming out of the the pandemic slowdown was very slow to bring additional barrels to the market. But I'm curious, just more broadly, how, how do you how you trace the path from 2019, 2020 uh, into the fall? And what what are the different factors that you feel like were the key ones for for you know rising prices before Ukraine? I think you know the the two events you know are, are what happened on the supply side that I would argue you know dates all the way back to 0809 and really accelerated in 14, um, and then the demand side events um, you know they go back to um, you know March of 2020 when COVID first struck and so. Why don't I take a minute to talk about the supply story and, and you know provide that framework going back to 0809, and then let's talk about what happened in March 2020 on the demand side to permanently shift us into a new environment. Because by October 2020, it became clear to us that we were entering a new commodity super cycle, okay. um, similar to what we saw in the 1970s and what we saw in the 2000s. And I want to emphasize everything we see going on in oil is being mimicked with what's happening in the rest of the commodity complex. So it's not unique to oil per se. We see it in agriculture, we see it um, in metals, um, and we're seeing it pretty much across the entire old economy, you know, even in the auto sector. Um, and so beginning with the supply side story, um, we coined the term back in February of 2002, this idea of the revenge of the old economy. And, and the idea, just put bluntly, is poor returns in the old economy saw capital redirected into the new economy that choked off the investment that would have otherwise been used to grow the supply base. Um, and in the case of the current context, this revenge of the old economy um, was being offset into the new economy called the fangs. Um, another way to say it is investors preferred Netflix over Exxon. In bottom line, Netflix had tremendously better returns than Exxon over this time period. So did investors do the right thing? Yes, they chased the better returns. Um, yeah, and by the way, is that, is that sort of how I should think about the definition of new economy versus old economy? Is that like the perfect paradigm, Exxon versus Netflix? You know, it's today though, it, yeah, that's the perfect paradigm for new economy, old economy. But, um, you know, you know, bringing it something closer to your heart, there's now the third economy, which is the green economy. So you have the green economy, the old economy, and the new economy. Um, so you have all three of them now, which we didn't have in that 2000 cycle. Um, but I want to emphasize when we think about that super cycle in the 70s and the super cycle in the 2000s is both were preceded by these big equity new economy booms. You had the nifty 50 in the 60s that stole all the capital away from the old economy then. You had the dot-com boom in the 90s, which is where we came up with this term of the revenge of the old economy. And um, today you have the fang boom, but they all serve the same purpose was to siphon capital out of the old economy. And by the way, it was the right economic decision. And if you have to really ask yourself, why do you get these big cycles in the supply side for commodities? Because the bottom line, they're, they're very capital intensive. Um, and they, it, it, there is a very long lead time. You know, in shale, and we're, you know, we can talk about shale later on. Is while shale may be fast cycle, a lot of the equipment that go into shale is long cycle, and those are some of the constraints that we're hitting right now. But when we go back to 0809, and which is why I really start this in 0809, there, there was concerns about 
economic policy in the forward outlook such that investors preferred short cycle over long cycle. Another way to say it, they preferred iPhones over copper mines. Um, they were worried about the future. And when we think about you know, the, the long cycle, another thing that it has very much in common is it's capital heavy um, as opposed to being capital light. And everything coming out of the financial crisis and this focus on financial stability forced the economy to avoid anything that was capital heavy. Another way to say it is capital light um, you know, generated far better returns. And we look at the equity market over the last decade, you know, the great returns that companies were printing over this time period was associated with the fact they didn't have big CapEx programs that were capital intensive. And when you think about the old economy, it's entirely um, you know, capital intensive. So that's really sits at, I would argue, at the core of you know the supply side story. And then beginning in around 2017, um, and by the way, when we think about the, the revenge of the old economy, it really gained momentum in 14 and 15, as you point out, when oil prices collapsed, because at that point, um, the only capital available for the sector um, was for refinancing previous debt, um, non-drilling programs. Everybody thought, why spend any money drilling, um, particularly the long cycle deep water offshore CapEx, because one, um, you know, we've got too much shale, the returns are terrible, prices are too low. But second, because of environmental concerns around climate change and ESG, the belief was we'll never need those long cycle, 10, 15 year deep water offshore platforms again. And so we essentially just stopped capital flowing to that kind of investment. And part of what's happening today after the negative oil prices, that's really beginning to drop off. But here's the other big that really trans, you know, put a lot of emphasis on the, on the lack of investment was ESG factors began to start to surface around 17, 18. And you, and you can look at it by just taking a measure of the XLE, which is the big energy index in the US divided by the S&P, look at it relative to oil prices beginning around 17, 18, the two started to separate. Um, because that's when investors started to shift their view on the long-term value of these energy assets around climate change. Um, and then by the time you got into 2020, 21, and that period, the separation became you know, absolutely massive. People will tell me, go, look, you know, these energy equities are up a couple hundred percent. Let me remind you, oil went from 20 to 120 over that time period. So the equities being up you know, a couple hundred percent is a fraction of what, what oil prices increased over that time period. So when you think about the valuation of these equities relative to where oil prices, they're tremendously undervalued. The free cash flow yields will tell you that by, you know, their free cash flow yields are trading 20, 30% in some cases. In the, and in the coal miners like Peabody, 75, 100%. Um, so yes, they've rallied, but nothing like what the underlying commodities did over that time period, which is you can understand whether if it's, you know, equity, whether if it is credit or whether if it is the commodities, um, the amount of capital in the space is severely depressed, far less than what we saw in the cycle in the 2000s or in the cycle um, in the 70s. Another point on that, you know, in the 70s, when Volcker took interest rates up 20 percent in 79, it was on the back of six years of massive CapEx. This time we're taking interest rates up not only on a lack of CapEx, but outflows in the sector because people don't want it. Um, and actually, one, and I'm belaboring the point here on, on supply, but I actually want to go over one more 
um, anecdote I, that I, I want to ask you a question about uh, about the story that you or the sort of the you know the analysis that you just outlined. I, I think a common, I guess, I think a common, uh, you know, con, uh, I don't know, counter to that or a, or a different view, uh, which I hear a lot, is well that the investment was really more about two things. One is that investors were burned by shale. And that shale had become like the dominant source. I mean, because there was tremendous production growth in shale in that period between 14 and, and 19. Uh, and then so, so investors had been burned by shale uh, in terms of, uh, and so when we look at, you know, uh, private capital. Uh, and then meanwhile, you know, the state-run companies uh, around the world were kind of holding back after having, you know, seen this huge surge up to 2014 from U.S. shale. And so the state-run companies kind of said, well, you know, if shale is going to be the driver, we're not going to, we don't have to invest as much at the margin. Uh, and so how do you think about that? Like, did the oil market change in a way that that also, you know, I guess, disincentivized, you know, a large capital investment? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I think your point about, you know, being burned is critical here, but I don't know if it's that much different than the previous periods, because when you think about, um, you know what happened in the in the 90s that's when you created those super majors like exxon mobile bp shell and the, you know the rest of them um is because um you know it was really hard to source capital um and so, yeah, so that they had to try to you know reduce costs through those big mega mergers um and you know i wasn't around the 70s but i would assume maybe it was a similar type of dynamic at the same and i, I kind of want to bring up to you know to, to get your point about investors being burned and unwilling to make these investments um, and it's the same thing in metals and mining and agriculture and the rest of these sectors. If I go out and I ask, you know, you know, investors, why do they not put money into the space? By the way, the answer top of the list is exactly what you're talking about is, you know, for the last 15 years in this space, you know, the losses, uh, you know, have been, you know, or wealth destruction has been significant. By the way, in the 90s, I had a stat used to give in the 90s, the EMPs destroyed 27 cents on every dollar they were given. And the big super majors destroyed six cents on every dollar they were given. By the way, the numbers this time were closer to 50 cents on every dollar. So no wonder they didn't like it. But, um, but you know, let's not forget that the losses were nothing short than epic going back just two years ago when we had negative oil price. And that's fresh in everybody's head. That scarring really has had an impact. And so when you, you go to your point, you know, yeah, this is, you know, you know, that's the reason number one. Reason number two, volatility is too high. And then reason number three is ESG, actually. Um, and so that scarring is, is real. And by the way, I asked them, I go, when will this change? What will it take to get investors to want to invest in the space? And they told me a three-year track record for the sector. That means not just, you know, oil, gas, metals, mining, all of it. Um, you know, they want to see commodities demonstrate positive returns for three big positive returns that'll compensate for the volatility for three years. Um, we're about 18, 19 months into that right now. Um, but also it tells you something about why are these, these cycles 10 years? Why do these super cycles last 10 to 12 years? The one in the 70s started in 68 and ended in, call it 1980. The other one started in 2002 and ended in 14, call it 12 years. Um, here's the reason why I think it's 12 years. Three years to get a, a, a track record. Because you think it started in 02, 
And the money that started didn't flow until around 05. So it took about three years. And I remember when it started flowing. When it flows, um, you know, I think it's like a ski boat, you know, that pulls you out of the water. It, it's powerful. Um, we're not there yet. Um, and, you know, in terms of thinking about you, what it did to the market once it started flowing, created massive cost inflation because it goes into the equities. The equities then spend. And then there's nothing there. There's no people. There's no trucks. There's no equipment. Then they got to go out and buy all this stuff. Then you get massive cost inflation. By the way, the cost inflation is already starting to occur. You know, in 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 the U.S. shale patch, it's twenty percent in the first quarter. They didn't spend twenty percent, so the real spend went down. And let's just think about if broader inflation is what eight point six five or whatever it is. Um, that's just telling you the headwind on spending in this sector is already significant. Um, but I think then you go from in the 2000s, you know, first three years track record, years four through six is the inflationary pressures, putting all the equipment in place. And then finally, in years, call it seven through 12, you de-bottleneck the system. Right. And I think that's what happened in the 70s. It would tell you why these things are close to always being. We have two of them that we can observe, and they were somewhere in that 10 to 12 year range. And that would be consistent with, you know, taking three years to get a track record. So, okay. So coming into, let's say 2020, the, the kind of picture that you, I think really uh, vividly outlined is this, you know, constraints on the supply side, demand kind of collapses for about a year there in, in the middle of a global shutdown in, 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 in uh, 2020. Uh, and then what happens? So we come out of the, we come out of the, the, uh, the shutdowns, demand comes roaring back. I, so I, there's part of me that thinks, okay, you know, I can see sort of the the, the buildup in the in supply constraints having an impact, but what did we we didn't lose capacity right on the production side? I mean, during that period, it seems like, or at least not uh, not a huge volume. It seems like part of the of the of the issue with prices, at least in in my mind, in 2021 in the fall, was uh, policy driven, slow kind of response on the supply side. Well, I, I, I want to say we did lose, we did lose um, some demand and or some supply, excuse me, the, the capacity, um, because remember, energy is different than metals and mining metal. Let's say an aluminum smelter. Once you build it, it's there for the next 30 plus years of capacity. Energy has a natural decline rate. The pressure of the field declines, particularly once you shut in and particularly in older fields, which is a point I like to make that. Um, you know, if you look back, you know, even going back a few months ago, um, there was only two producers who could produce more today than what they could in January 2020. And that was Saudi Arabia and UAE, because they actually made investments over that time period to continue to grow capacity. And those big Middle East fields don't suffer from the decline rates like, let's say, the U.S., North Sea or, you know, Mexico and other parts of the world. So when you shut in those oil fields in March and April of 2020, it had a profound impact on, mm. on some of that capacity. But I, I actually want to shift gears and talk about demand a little bit, um, uh, because the, the demand really is what exposed the severity of this problem. This problem was brewing for a very, very long period across. Or again, again, I, you know, I remember, um, you know, I, I was making charts of, of investment in the U.S. back in 2014, and um, you could see the investment collapse that was occurring. And I thought, eventually it started around 08, 09. And so. I want to take a step back and tie the supply story to the demand story and, and tell you what the most fascinating thing that I've picked up in the last decade or so on commodities. And I think this is, has a lot to do why the macro community missed 
the inflationary pressures that are so viciously gripping the economy right now. And, and it goes back to, to a, a simple observation is that high income people cannot create inflation or commodity bull markets. Only the low income groups can. In fact, it's, it's numerically impossible a high income group can create inflation. And it goes to at the core of commodities. Commodities are volumetric markets. Everything in the CPI is a volumetric market. Financial markets are dollar markets, dollar notional. And I, I really want to dig into this because there's one thing you take away from, from this podcast is really at, at the core of this is that when we think about a, a oil market, how do you quote it? 100 million barrels per day volume. How do you quote a labor market? You know, millions of people employed. How do you quote a copper market? You know, 20 million metric tons of copper per year. When how do you quote a financial market? Dollars. Billions of dollars, yeah, do- billions of dollars of, of out, or even a GDP, you quote it in trillions of dollars of output because the concept of volume simply does not exist. Um, and so when we think about, um, let's take, you know, what do the world's high income um, control? They control dollars through wealth and income inequality. And so when we think about, um, can the world's um, high income group create um, financial or, or, or stock price inflation? Absolutely, yes. They just pump money into the system. Can they create GDP growth? Absolutely, yes. They just pump money in the system. But can they create physical market inflation? It's numerically impossible. There's not very many wealthy people in the world. Um, and so when we think about the volumetric demand required, unless they hoarded it, which in many markets is just impossible. You're not going to hoard all the world's oil as an individual because where are you going to store it? Where are you going to store all the world's grain? And so the reality is only the world's low income groups control the volume large enough to create bull markets in commodities or bull periods of inflation. In fact, there's no exception to this. Only the world's low income groups have created inflation or have created commodity bull markets. You know, let's go back to the 2000s. What was that one? You know, once China was admitted to the WTO, it unleashed a very powerful outsourcing arbitrage between U.S. and Europe's wealthy and 400 million low-income rural Chinese. And that was, you know, that was at the core of that Chinese-driven bull market in the 2000s, because 400 million new low-income rural Chinese were introduced to the world with income, and they started buying stuff. And there's your volumetric demand growth. What was the 1970s? It was LBJ's war on poverty. You know, I like to point out OPEC tried an Arab oil embargo in 67, but the demand in the U.S. was growing at 4%. After five years of the war on poverty in the Great Society, oil demand uh, was growing at 8%. And it wasn't per capita that moved you from 4 to 8. It was all that spending. And once you were at 8%, they tried an Arab oil embargo and boom, it worked. But I think the core of it was you were introducing a large number of new people volumetric demand into the system. And if we think about, you know, let's bring it, you know, even the periods of inflation in the, you know, Latin America, Italy, all of it was driven by low income groups. So let's bring it back to, you know, um, you know, 2020. What happened? In 2020, um, you know, you, you look at, you know, the COVID, it was a crisis of inequalities. Um, and ultimately, governments needed to focus on those disadvantaged groups. And you started to see transfers into those groups. And there, boom, it's just like the 70s or just like the 2000s. It was a gigantic wealth transfer to lower income groups. But I want to bring it back and tie 
the the story of the supply side to the demand side. Let's go back. What was the financial crisis at its core? The financial crisis was a subprime crisis. Um, too much lending to lower income groups. Now let's think about what was the the government's response immediately to the financial crisis in October 08. Stop credit to low income groups. The next thing was austerity, stop fiscal transfers to low income groups. The third was QE, which benefited high income groups over low income groups. And what did we do? We just pulled the carpet out from underneath the world's low income groups, particularly on both sides of the Atlantic. There went your demand for commodities, your demand for old economy goods, because that's volumetric. And you can see it in the data. You see a collapse in October of 08. You stay below trend all the way till March 2020, and then boom, you explode to the upside because you brought that group back into the mix again. And so when we think about what that demand explosion did in 2020 and into 2021 was expose the severity of these supply constraints. And when we think about this demand side, um, you know, we think you know, there's really there's three big policy initiatives that came out of out of COVID that I think are going to be with us for the next decade or more. And the way we like to remember it is redlining commodity demand, R-E-D. The R stands for redistributional policies. Um, and by the way, they're still at it today. What is Europe doing with the subsidies and the windfall profit tax? Redistributing to the lower income groups. So everybody tells me it went away with the pandemic. No, it's still alive and kicking. And you know it's part of the energy policy that we're seeing. The E stands for environmental policy. That's the green capex. And in terms of thinking about how stimulative this is, you know, it's going to be the size of China this decade, $16 trillion. Why do I say the size of China? China in the 2000s was $10 trillion. Put it in real terms, it's roughly about $16 trillion. And then next decade, it could be potentially two Chinas. You know, um, dealing with climate change, the reason why oil is the best hedge against inflation, carbon's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's in our clothes. It's in everything, our phones, everywhere we look. That's why it's such a good hedge for inflation. So getting carbon out of our lives is going to be a really expensive task. And then P stands for deglobalization, building resiliency in supply chains to avoid trade wars, pandemics, geopolitical risks like what we're seeing in, in, in Russia. It's just it's very expensive and raises the cost of everything, creates more commodity demand. So these policies are going to create a structural rise in demand similar to the 70s or the 2000s. At the exact same time, you have this severe underinvestment on, on, the, on the supply side, which creates, you know, the way to say is what happened after 2020, this huge structural rise in demand drew down the inventories and exposed the severity of the situation, which is how we got here today. Yep. Uh, and then Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, I'm curious how you think the U.S. and Europe have handled the response to that. What do you make of the policy response? Uh, which is, you know, I mean, set against the backdrop of the of the context that you just outlined. You know, I've I've questioned a little bit the I don't know the whether the the planning has been adequate around the approach to penalizing Russia, which has been purely you know, which is heavily in addition to the financial sanctions, has been heavily focused on the on energy production and in the in the market that you just outlined. Uh, taking more supply offline is very risky if you don't have a very clear plan for how to handle that. Um, but it seems very much that's the path we're headed down. What, what do you make of the policy response? 
I, I think separating U.S. and Europe is critical here. By the way, the U.S. was built for this in, this environment. They're a barbell economy. They got tech on one end, and they've got commodities on the other. A little more investment, you know. They're long coal, long gas, long food, long agriculture, long chemicals. They're long everything, but a little bit of oil and a little investment. They can be long that again. Um, so it's like a, you know the U.S. you know is in a different boat. Europe, on the other hand, China on the, and Asia, on the other hand, severely exposed to this. Um, and, and accordingly, the policy responses have been very different. And, you know, the way we like to term the European policy response is the revenge of the old political economy, um, going back to, you know, policies that we thought we knew were not probably the most optimal. You know, I like to point out Europe unwind, you know, two decades of energy liberalization. We've gone backwards. In fact, I like to say we're in a worse place today now than we were 12 years ago. We got more emissions because the restart of the coal plants coming out of out of Germany. And we have no investment in hydrocarbons because of emphasis on ESG investing. So we got no investment in hydrocarbons, more emissions. That in my book is we're worse off. Uh, but, you know, using, you know, the playbook of calling it, you know, the revenge of the old economy, similar to the 1970s. You know, we got power price caps. We've got windfall profit taxes. You know, we've got reinvestment of the windfall profit tax back into lower income groups. So basically, what have we created? A, you know, a inelastic or vertical demand curve and a vertical supply curve now that really doesn't have an equilibrium, which is just going to intensify um, the volatility in this space. And, you know, and again, I, do these policymakers, you know, know what they did? Um, they have to. We knew what this did in the 70s, you know, which is why I call it the revenge of the old political economy. Um, you know, the, the outcome potentially going forward, I think, is significant. But to answer your question, the U.S. is thoughtfully thinking, you know, maybe tariffs is the right way to go here. It punishes um, um, Russia, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, um, keeps the volumes on, on the markets. Um, Europe is going down with with actual embargoes. Um, and, you know, this is very different than, you know, people of the 73. Those, that was a producer embargo targeted at, um, at, um, you know, at the U.S. during for political reasons, didn't last that long. This is good. This is going down a, a, an avenue. I don't think we really want to go. And I, you know, I think, you know, Sam, you're spot on in saying that, you know, this everything was set in motion long before the Russian invasion. And policymakers around the world want to blame this all on, on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's not. In fact, I'll go as far as to say the Russian invasion of Ukraine was a direct result of the energy crisis. Look when um, Putin started amassing troops on the border in Ukraine. Um, it, the timing is right around, you know, October, November of last year. September, it became very clear um, Europe had entered into a, an energy crisis. There's a whole other discussion how they got into that. Um, but I think the, the key point here is Russia is not a, you know, a, a, you know, the cause of the problem. It's a symptom of a bigger problem. And so far, the policy response coming out of Europe is making the situation worse as opposed to better. We'll see what happens as they try to implement the actual embargo itself. Um, you know, in terms of implementing the, you know, the embargo, um, you know, it's going to take a bad situation and most likely make it, you know, worse. How much oil, how much Russian oil do you think uh, is off the market right now? Um, we'd say somewhere around 600,000 barrels per day, far less than what the 1.7 million barrels per day we initially feared, which is, you got to ask, if we're only 600 off right now and we're at 123 or 124 right now, what happens if they implement the current round of sanctions in Europe 
which we think would end up being somewhere around 1.5 million barrels per day in, you know, towards the, you know, in, you know, 12 months time. Um, it, that becomes substantial. And then you throw in the lack of investment and everything like that. It really begs the question, you know, can the market handle it? And I think, you know, my sense is that the answer is potentially no, the market can't handle it. How, how much, how much of the, of the, what, let's call it, what, is it roughly 2 million barrels a day of Russian oil that would be covered by the, by the European uh, embargo? How much of that do you think can be redirected? So it sounds like you're saying you think some of it can, but not all of it. Yeah, I mean, a good chunk of it, if you, if you just take the total number of 4.5 that comes out, out of uh, into U.S. and Europe in the, in the areas that do not want to take the Russian oil, um, you, know, you, you should be able to redirect um, all but somewhere around 1.5 of it. And, you know, the, the idea there is that, you know, you've got the, the, the Indians that can take it, the Chinese that can take it, but these are all unknowns. You got to get the right kind of ship to give you an idea. In the Baltics, up in the north, in, um, you know, in Europe, the, you know, you can't take in a VLCC. The, the, the ports aren't deep enough. So you got to take in these LR2s and then use lightering, everything like that to fill this very expensive process. The ships cost more to go around the world. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of questions. Then you got the refining capacity. Can it absorb it? Um, you know, is it the right kind of refining capacity that's built for these types of crews is being redirected? And then you got to take, you know, are the are the, you know the Saudis and the rest of the big Middle East producers are they willing to to you know move oil into places like like um, like the United States or like like Europe for for losing market share in Asia? These are all big question marks, and I think that's part of the reason why you've seen the overtures. Of the U.S. towards um, Saudi Arabia recently is these are going to be very difficult shifts to achieve, and there's a lot of question marks. We'll see if it can be done, but it creates in some ways. In some ways, 1.5 to 2 million barrels a day strikes me as like the worst possible outcome. It's exactly the enough. It's exactly the right amount of oil to take off the market that will cause prices to go up high enough to offset the lost production for Russia and leave Russia no worse off than they were at the start of the whole thing, no matter what the discounts are. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it, I, at this point right now, inventories are exhausted, spare capacity is mostly exhausted globally. Um, you know, there's just not losing that much oil in this current context. I think, it, you know, it, it is it is catastrophic to the market. Um, so, so the two the two big wild cards that you didn't mention there, that I'm curious about. You mentioned we started to talk a little bit about the U.S. earlier. The U.S. and China strike me as two, if not the two biggest, two of the biggest kind of unknowns. Uh, what do you think, what do you think U.S. producers can do in that environment in terms of additional volumes to the market? Yeah, with, with the U.S., um, you know, you know, you know, our expectations to get to, you know, 1.1, 1.2 type of growth over the next 12 months, but getting beyond that is really difficult. Hmm. And by the way, you're up about 300, um, you know, through this period and the big, big, you know, if we go December to December, you're up about 300 right now. And the big increase comes in the second half of this year. Anyway, can um, I ask you, that, just, since you just since you're on that, can I just ask you, is that production growth that would not have otherwise happened? In other words, is that production growth that is in some ways a response to these prices or was that already kind of baked into the cake and, and we're not necessarily getting actually it was baked. These numbers we've been talking about for two years now for this year. It's not that far off what it was initially expected. And I think this goes to a point that, you know, is that, you know, is there enough infrastructure, people, um, pressure pumping capacity, trucks and everything like that to take it higher? 
The answer is probably no, um, which means it goes back to this whole idea, the revenge of the old economy impacting investment across the entire old economy, everything from truck chassis. You know, the truck crisis in the U.S. is really the same problem as, uh, as you know, the energy crisis. It's underinvestment in not only you know, drivers and anything that's old, old economy, or whether, you know, truck chassis and drivers, um, and that's going to impact the ability to grow shale, you know, sand, all of this stuff, um, you know, we've, uh, we've not invested in significantly. And it goes back to this whole thing, you know, the, the, the you know, the investors globally, or, you know, corporates globally have ignored anything capital heavy, you didn't want to have capital heavy on your balance sheet. By the way, a lot of that comes out of Basel III and, you know, the the, the supplemental um, leverage ratio requirements at banks. Um, you know, they bump up against those. Um, you know, the belief is you don't want to put that much risk in the system. And so all this stuff, by the way, it's relatively low risk, um, but it's big balance sheet hog and it'll absorb the, these capital ratios. Um, so everybody wants to avoid it and go capital light. You know, going back to Netflix versus Exxon. Netflix is a capital light model. You don't, you aren't going to bump into these constraints chasing Netflix like you will with something like Exxon. Right. So U.S. producers are unlikely to, in any meaningful way, come to the rescue. Uh, they, the other kind of, the other kind of uh, wild card out there. It seems to me that part of the reason that oil prices aren't much higher is that, uh, you know, what happened in China. We, the global economy sort of caught a break with, uh, with China's policy response to Omicron. Uh, and these shutdowns, do we should we be expecting a large, you know, rebound in Chinese demand soon? I think we're in the process of that. You know, I think that's probably if you ask me what the single biggest factor impact on the oil market commodities it even go as far as, you know, you know, you know, the broader, um, you know, flow of good trades and goods is China. It's bigger than what happened in Russia. I know, I don't want to diminish, you know, the the. The humanitarian um, impact that or actually the humanitarian impact in China was significant, too. Um, but those lockdowns, you just give you an idea. So we're down six, seven hundred thousand barrels per day in, in Russian oil production. Demand was down two point five million barrels per day, nearly wow. three times what, you know, the impact of, of Russia right now. Um, and, you know, because those lockdowns in Shanghai were significant and. Yep. Um, you know, and it looks like now that, you know, we're coming out of it, we're probably down around 800,000 barrels per day. So the loss in demand is still bigger than the loss of, of supply. By the way, we're right now at that cross, which is why oil prices are, are rallying again. But you got to ask yourself, you had that big of a shock and oil hung in there, call it $110 a barrel over that time period. Metals demand was down, you know, 10%. They stayed at copper stayed at, you know, $9,500 a ton. Corn stayed at, you know, call it $7.50 a bushel. So you got to ask yourself, what happens as China rebounds? Is that actually the bigger issue here than, than even Russia? I'm, you know, we're, we're going to watch what happens. I think a lot of people are worried that you're going to get rolling lockdowns, but the way the Chinese are trying to get around it is by using, um, you know, more, more testing procedures and stay on top. And by the way, the initial evidence that they're testing is seems to be working, you know, in, in, um, you know, I think it's in, um, in Shenzhen, you know, the testing seems to be, um, you know, showing the, um, you know, that it's actually able to catch this at an earlier stage to be able to avoid similar lockdowns like what we saw in, in Shanghai. So, you know, right now we're maybe we're down, you know, Six, seven hundred thousand barrels per day of demand. Our base case going in the second half is four hundred. And as we go into next year, you start to normalize again. And so you have to ask if we could, if you know, 
you normalize, you know, demand, bring back another 800,000 barrels per day of demand. Same time, you're going to have their big seasonal uptick in demand. Um, you know, that's three to four million barrels per day. You start to lose Russia. This market starts to get extraordinarily tight as you get into the, you know, the depths of the summer months. And what does that look like for prices? You know, I, we, we see it topping out around 140 because um, a lot of this is going into products at a higher pace into the product prices because, again, lack of investment of what's going on on the refining capacity side. And there it well, has a lot to do with ESG, you know, just shuttering refineries because they don't want to have this stuff on their balance sheet and be, and they, you know, companies find it, you know, say you're a big petrochemical company, you have a refinery on, on your balance sheet. Um, you want to be a pure chemical play because you're going to get a higher multiple for not having hydrocarbons on your balance sheet. You just shut the refinery down. Um, and then nobody wants to buy it because it's a toxic asset in this ESG environment. It gets shut down and then puts more upward pressure on, on refined product prices. By the way, I, I want to make sure that everybody listens to this. I am so pro-climate change. It's something we need to deal with. And I don't want to sound like I'm anti-climate change. I just think there's better ways we can go about doing it. So I want to make sure that that's clear. Yeah. And maybe Sam and I have time to talk about that too. We do, but, we uh, do. I think you and I probably both have a similar view that that uh, yeah. more efficient policy ways to deal with yeah. with, uh, with climate change. And it's has uh, impacts on inflation too. So yeah. So so before we turn to that, I guess I do want to ask you. You know, when you say you see prices topping out at 140, uh, I assume that that is has something to do with some expectations around demand destruction. You know, the, the demand destruction part, we don't know where. You know. You know, our models would say 125, one, we're, that we're, in, we're entering that period right now. But those models were based upon an environment in which demand was far more elastic. Why? Because of the lack of subsidies and price caps and protection and everything like that. And I mean, it's every country in the world is stepping up to protect their lower income groups. You know, whether if it's India or, you know, Indonesia or Sri Lanka Remember, think about all that savings glut that was built up over the previous two decades. They're sitting on eleven trillion dollars of money sitting in, whether if it is in a sovereign wealth fund, you know, they're the central bank or whatever. They can start using this to to help out the lower income groups. And you know, Europe outright windfall profit taxes to subsidize the lower income groups. Um, you know, all of this, you know, suggests that the 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 pressure point for demand destruction probably a lot higher than what our models that are based upon historical elasticities would suggest. So yeah. How much of that do you, mm -hmm. sorry, how, how much of that do you think, uh, you know, you mentioned this, you know, sort of the savings glut of the last 20 years, but how much did all of the stimulus during COVID? I mean, that strikes me as a, a very large, at least in the U S a large potential sort of buffer for, for many households that that would give demand a much longer runway than anything we've seen in the past. Absolutely. And everybody makes the point, you know, we've shifted from being, you know, the savings, you know, the high savings rates have dropped. But let's remember that's flow versus stock. The stock of savings sitting in people's bank accounts is still very large or, or was sitting in, you know, equity markets and things like that, that, you know, that they can pull out, which means the ability to, to, to survive with this is much higher. Also, credit capacity. Remember, that's what everybody was worried about recessions. Recessions are caused by imbalances. Um, in the economy. And the imbalances, there's not that many of them. And that's why we rolled with, with COVID so quickly. Um, and when we think about you know, the situation of dealing with higher um, oil prices, both sides of the Atlantic, the imbalances sitting on the consumer balance sheets are not that great. So they got credit capacity. They still have savings. Yes, 
we have shifted to, to the bad side of that on flow, but the stock is still there. So uh, how do you how do you think about the impact on the economy then? I mean, what, what resolves this crisis or is maybe another way to ask it? I mean, historically, what would resolve this crisis is a recession. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I think, you know, the, when we look at, you know, resolving it, you know, recession is demand destruction. Demand destruction is not a long term solution to this. There is only one long term solution, and that's investment. That's CapEx. You got to put money to work to be able to grow. And we've been avoiding, like your initial question, what are the seeds of this? Lack of investment. Um, and the only way out is investment. And how did we get out of the 70s? We got out of it through massive CapEx. Yeah, Volcker took interest rates up to 20 that created the recession, but you would have never came out of the recession, you know, booming in the 80s without massive investment to de-bottleneck the system. And everybody goes, productivity gains. Well, productivity gains and technology still require investment. I don't care if you want to get it through outright increases in you know, supply of commodities or outright increases in more efficient use and productivity gains. I don't care. Either one of those require CapEx, require investment. And by the way, both are capital heavy things that we've been avoiding. So to answer your question, a recession is a temporary solution. Um, is it really to get the real long-term solution requires investment. So that's a good transition to, I, I want to talk about sort of the medium term outlook for the market. And that, and I think there's, I think that's a good place to talk about climate policy. But before we get to that, I guess, if we're talking about, you know, I, I mean, I agree with you that uh, investment is the only long-term solution. We're going to be facing an environment, though, in which, you know, Russian uh, ability to maintain production growth is going to go down with all the, you know, with the Schlumberger and Halliburton's and others pulling out access to technology and, and maybe even capital. Or we're really facing kind of a double whammy. We don't just have to increase investment. Uh, you know, to, to resolve the current supply crisis. But there seems to be, especially if you think about what is potentially going to happen in Russia, where, where even if the crisis in Ukraine resolves, Russian production growth may be going down uh, or production capacity may be going down in the next over the next several years. We're facing this kind of double whammy of having to also offset that. So it, it's, a, it's a huge investment lift that is potentially in front of the global oil industry. Absolutely. And they put some numbers around the decline rates in Russia. You know, yeah, the Russians themselves have hinted that you could potentially lose two to three million barrels per day of, of capacity. By the way, um, from a macro perspective, it's, you know, if they got a central bank freeze and hard assets like euros and dollars are useless to them, they don't need to have anything beyond that. In fact, it was the CEO of Luke Oil made this point. He goes, out of the 10 million barrels per day they produce, Four of it, it goes to the cost of the industry to keep it going. Three of it goes to the, the government. Three of it goes, then the final three, which, you know, four gets that plus the three got the seven. And the last three went to go earn hard assets like dollars and euros. If you don't need those dollars and euros and they're useless to them, you don't need to produce that extra three for the rest of the global economy. And by right. the way, any macroeconomist will just tell you, yeah, given that, that asset freeze, you're going to get that result. Um, and so when we think about you lose, whether it's decline rates, lack of investment from, you know, Halliburton or, you know, CapEx, two to three is probably somewhere in the ballpark of what we're going to lose. So then you ask, OK, demand keeps going up, underinvestment in the U.S., the rest of the world. The, the, the call on CapEx is going to be absolutely enormous in an environment which we talked started this saying nobody wants to make investment. We have outflows right now. Um, and so I think, you know, that. This kind of brings you into the policy question is, and actually we're entering what I call a volatility trap, where the higher the volatility, 
um, the lower the incentive to investment, the lack to investment in reinforces the higher volatility. There's only one entity who can come in and stop that. And that's, that's a government. It's a policymaker it comes in. And, you know, I know the listeners on this are going to go, you can't believe what I'm going to say. They're going to have to come in there and create some type of environment to subsidize or stop that volatility, incentivize investments in hydrocarbons. And that sounds insane to say, but how did you solve the 70s? Why did you, why when Volcker increased, you know, rates by 20%, you had six years of investment because after 73, government stepped in and created, you know, the incentives, whether if it's subsidies around pipes or, or you know, drilling rigs or whatever it was um, that stimulated that massive surge of investment that got you into the 80s of a deflationary period. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, stepping, you know, completely out of line here, but I don't know how you're going to break that volatility trap. Um, otherwise, somebody's got to step in there that's big enough. And that's typically a policymaker saying, hey, everybody, you know, actually, you know, how do, how do they do it with, um, how do they do it in, you know, in agriculture? They, you know, it's like puts, you know, something really bad happens. The government will give, you know, the farm, farm aid programs give subsidies to farmers if the price of soybeans collapse. You know, it's something like that. Uh, but we're, we're heading into a really bad situation that where we can't get investment to flow under current economic conditions means that somebody's going to step in there and have to underwrite the risk. Yeah, it doesn't. I don't think that has to be at odds with climate policy. I think in some ways it can swim in the same direction as climate policy. Uh, I read an interesting article uh, yesterday by Matt Iglesias uh, that was that sort of brushed up against this topic of of whether you know constrained supply, constrained fossil fuel supply. Uh, you know, which I think is consistent with the idea of, you know, ESG and sort of keep it in the ground and some of these kinds of things um, is like takes all of the worst elements of carbon pricing and, and eliminates many of the benefits. And so what you end up with is very high fossil fuel prices um, that really agitate voters, agitate political constituencies and make it and sort of undermine support for climate policy. Uh, and at the same time, none of those revenues end up in, you know, central government, uh, you know, at least in, in the U.S., don't end up in, in central government coffers where they can be invested, you know, back to into the economy. You know, they're instead just sort of a transfer to fossil fuel producers. And so, you know, has, I think uh, or an argument that would be consistent with that is, look, if you believe enough in the policies on the demand side and the technologies on the demand side, electric vehicles, fuel efficiency, whatever it may be, um, it, it may not be in anyone's best interest to to be focused on constraining supply, uh, you know, in the interim. I, I, by the way, what, what you're describing is just kind of another form of a carbon price or a carbon tax that's able to, you know, take some of the revenue and direct it in ways to solve, you know, the longer term climate change. By the way, I want to emphasize ESG is a carbon tax. It's just a tax that gets a shadow tax. By, by, yeah, shadow tax is collected by Vladimir Putin and other producers around the world. Yeah. And so, uh, is that, I mean, is that, a, is that a framework for thinking about how this, because I, I mean, I think it's easy, it would be easy to, to, to come away from the idea of like, look, uh, the world is going to be very, very short fossil fuels, it's going to be very short oil uh, without considerable investment in the upstream. It would be, it, would, it wouldn't be impossible to come away from that thinking, well, that's like a very bad outlook um, for climate, for carbon, uh, because you're going to have all of this investment. And, you know, you're locking in lots of production growth for decades uh, or for years that uh, is inconsistent with climate. But I wonder if, you know, would you agree that you, know, you could if you have 
On the on the demand side, you have very clear kind of transparent policies that are designed to reduce demand in a in a in a kind of consistent transparent way. Uh, the the investment on the supply side has to take that into account. And so, you know, if you have a much more kind of smooth pathway on the demand side, the investment on the supply side can can be calibrated, you know, lower uh, to kind of be in line with that. I 100% agree with, with everything that you're saying here, um, because you know, ultimately, the, you know, we have a carbon economy or old economy, what do you want to call it? And then you have a green economy. you got to scale one down in a in a in a manner that is consistent with the way you're scaling the other one up to be able to accommodate global growth. And by tying those two together is the only way you're going to connect them. Um, and right now, we, we don't have any policy anywhere in the world of how you scale down the one, which is why it's getting scaled back up by, by the, you know, groups like the Germans. Um, and then we have, you know, some, you know, haphazard um, policies on how to scale up, up the green economy. And what we're left with is, by the way, the power electricity prices doesn't care which one you are pricing, you know, at the margin. By the way, coal is the one that's at the margin that's pricing everything at this point in time. So it is the carbon economy pricing everything. But I think that's critical here is that is that the outcome, you know, you know, the micro outcome, you know, the price at the very top at the margin doesn't know which if it's the green economy or it's the um, or the carbon economy that's pricing it. And so. The only way you're going to be able to be able to do this in a fashion to accommodate global growth is like you're saying, trying to tie the two together in a in a fashion that is efficient and optimized to be able to accommodate global growth. Yep. And what's your uh, what's your level of uh, optimism for that? You know, is, you know, when you look at the the 1970s, when the Clean Air Act Amendment was put in place and remind you, it was Republicans. It was it was Richard Nixon who who did the Clean Air Act a minute, there was a Lake Erie moment. Lake Erie was on fire. Everybody knew how bad the situation was. Smog was unbearable. And, and you got to that point. Um, you know, what the direction we are glowing with increased you know, carbon emissions with um, lack of investment on hydrocarbon. We're teeing ourselves up for a Lake Erie moment. You know, is it a, you know, a cataclysmic crisis of, you know, underinvestment on on energy combined with, you know, is it Miami underwater? I don't know, you know, type of scenario you can create here, but it's not sustainable. And I'd like to point out, you know, ESG investments are micro sustainable in a very small, isolated, you know, event, which is why we call it sustainable investing. But the bottom line is, from a macro perspective, nothing we're talking about is sustainable. Which means we're heading we're heading off into a really bad direction, and are we going to get that Lake Erie moment that caused Richard Nixon to sign into policy the Clean Air Act? Something I want everybody to remember: we have the memory, we know what to do in a cross-border international environmental crisis. That was the war on acid rain. So we've done it. We've been there. So there is the the know-how and the knowledge to do this. We just got to get to the point where we're able to do it. Jeff Curry, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. We cover a lot of ground. Uh, hope to have you back again. Great. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate joining you. And thanks to all of you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Worry. <laughs>